Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Light, and this is Open Source. What we know of Tiananmen Square is mostly the savagery of tanks turned against plain people 30 years ago. What's just as compelling in restored memory is the charged air of hope and possibility in Tiananmen and in China of the 1980s until just days before the crackdown and the end of reform. Tiananmen Square had more and bigger speakers' corners than Hyde Park in London. Students, workers, artists plying their agendas, musicians trying tunes, rehearsing democracy, you could have supposed. It was a romantic proving ground of blooming civic virtue and community spirit, and the American audience loved it. A token of the sea change underway was the first emergence of Chinese rock music. Jeremy Barmay was a student from Australia back in the day, inhaling 80s China, living it as deeply as any visitor could. Today, he's the writer and filmmaker that a lot of Chinese scholars summon to recall their country and its culture on a high. So for me, the protest was exciting and thrilling, uplifting, because the young protesters and their supporters among the people, intellectual activists who all were hoping that China would now join the mainstream of global history to become a more open, modern, mature society in which people have civil engagement on the basis of constitutional rule. All these things that the Chinese as a nation had battled for and debated really since 1898, for you know, nearly you know, over 80 years, people felt it might be realized. And I sort of watched and was in Beijing during that period, excited and enthralled as were others, and many of my friends were involved closely in the movement, like Liu Xiaobo, the famous Nobel Peace Prize winner who I'd known for years. Um, but many people also felt that tragedy was inevitable, yet nonetheless they felt they must try and make an effort, speak out, protest, and I knew the, the famous rock and roll singer Cui Jian, who appeared in the square to mm. egg people on out of you know, altruism and excitement and hope. And that was what was particular about that period, a, a period of, of hope and sorrow, tragedy yet um, uplift, all at the same time mixed mm. together in this celebration of possibility. Jeremy Barmay, deep into the 80s, almost up to the end, there was a euphoria in America and maybe in China, too. I remember Tom Brokaw saying, Zhao Jiang would have made a great mayor of Chicago, very accessible guy, drank two bottles of beer in a rare conversation on Meet the Press. But there was a feeling, even in the Reagan administration, that, and certainly in China by young people, that something historic was blossoming. How were they fooled? Or, may, or what was the chance that there was something there that could have lasted? It's now become a, a bit of a truism in America to speak about this era of deception or misapprehension or having been fooled. It's becoming, I call it this new era, the era of the disappointed. For those who were paying attention and were not just hopeful or seeking wish fulfillment, the turning point for these issues was at the very same moment that all these wonderful possibilities seemed to dawn. And that is, sadly to say, in March 1979, 10 years before the demonstrations. 
And I'll just take us back there for a moment to remind people what this, all, what this 1989 business was about. 1979, a number of things happened. The government had announced that we are now going to focus our national energies and those energies of the Communist Party on making up for lost time caused by all of the radical left-wing Maoist ideology of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. We will move away from that radical, what we call Maoism, in favor of limited market reform, and we'll concentrate on mm. economic re reconstruction rather than just on ideological warfare and class struggle. Now, that had just happened in late 78. And Deng Xiaoping and the others had all realized after themselves, having participated in all the bloodiness and insanity of the last 30 years, they had come finally to a conclusion over the broken bodies of millions of people that we should actually be a more rational market society. Now that was unfolding and there was a blossoming also of protest against the past by young people, poets, writers, thinkers, um, all type artists, and some of them became China's most famous filmmakers and writers and others, including Ai Weiwei. These people all appeared in the period 78, 79, and they protested at a place called Democracy Wall in yes, Beijing, yes, yes. Xidan. Now, on Democracy Wall in March 1979, encouraged by Deng, who said, you know, I can use these young people to further my case for further reforms and change against the old Maoist bureaucracy, which, oh, by the way, I'm also part of, um, on the, on, on the democracy wall, in March 79, a poster went up by a young, um, he's a former elite high school student who had a job as an electrician, by the, a man, man by the name of Wei Jingsheng. And he put up a poster in March 1979. Uh, it was also published in Summer's Dutch version, which just said, what we want democracy, not a new autocracy. Mm. And in it, he said, the economic changes being proposed are excellent. But in the long run, what we're going to get under Deng Xiaoping is yet, like Mao, another autocrat who will just be as intellectually limited as Mao, just as careless about law and the regulation of society and the growth of a civil society. So all those market reforms and changes will not be underpinned by anything long-term, constitutional, really legal. And they'll be able to change things whenever they wish. Therefore, we should lobby for real constitutional and legal change. Were the workers and the students on the same team, on the same page, on the cultural issues and on the marketization that was coming over the horizon? Yeah, nobody was on the same page, Chris. You had in Beijing, in the square at any one time, you had anything from 500,000 to a million people. I could speak to a couple of hundred during the weeks I was there. Everybody thought... Well, everybody thought that the recently dead Huiabang, the party general secretary, purged in 87, that was a great pity. Some thought he was a buffoon. Some thought he was a hero. Some thought he was an example of the Communist Party's possibilities and failures. Some supported Zhao Ziyang. Some thought he was a corrupt, you know, globalizer. Others thought Deng Xiaoping was good. Many thought that Deng Xiaoping represented the sclerotic Maoist past now and the Chinese younger people to take over. It depended who you spoke to. There was no concern, nothing about that movement in Beijing or the other many dozens of cities in which hundreds of thousands of people demonstrated. No consensus existed. So how do we even today see it in Chinese terms? You go back to ancient mythology uh, and the story of uh, a beleaguered emperor uh, bringing all his rivals into, a, into a, the court, in effect, to joust but to destroy themselves. Uh, this, there are precedents both in history and in mythology for this happening in China. How does the Chinese mind 
think what happened, what was lost, what could come again? Oh, Chris, you're so cute. So there is such a thing as the Chinese mind. I mean, that's that's the, that's well. the mythology that Americans all deal with. There's no such thing. <laughs> there's individuals, there's factions, there's ideas, there's interest groups, there's lobbyists, there's you name it. China is as varied and complex and nuanced and contradictory as your darling United States of America. Go back to the 80s and Tiananmen Square, that incredible variety of people, causes, ideas, ages, interests. Give us representative types of the people you thought were driving, driving those hopes. Well, let me, uh, I could give you a couple. So there's um, uh, my last day in, in Beijing, that time. So I left before June 4th. Uh, on the way to the airport, was, I encountered Wu Casey, one of the student leaders. And with Liu Xiaobo, my, an old friend I'd known for some years earlier. So Xiaobo first. He was, he's an intellectual, mm. incredible humor and grit and, you know, who despised the majority of even liberal intellectuals. who regard, He regarded most of them as phony, self-serving hypocrites. But at the same time, he was a, a passionate believer in the possibility of individual transformation. If we act, if we act as moral human beings, with emotion and engagement, we can make up for all the limitations of humanity and we can renew ourselves and we can redeem our sense of self-worth and dignity. He was deserving of all of the accolades he received. I'd known him since 80, 1986 and the person, a garrulous, impossible, rude, abrasive, hilarious, delightful, uplifting, maddening. What a wonderful character. He was a product of the 1980s. He gave voice to many of those complex, completely contradictory concerns. And how could you not be moved and thrilled? Mm. Meanwhile, he was with, that last day I saw him then, he was with Wu Kaishi, one of the most outspoken students, who was a student leader, who had famously put Li Pong, the premier, on the spot in a meeting in um, the Great Hall of the People a few weeks earlier. There's Wu Kaishi. We interviewed Wu Kaishi for our film, The Gate of Heavenly Peace. And he was, you know, he was a good time boy. You know, an attractive, um, mm. charismatic, amusing 22, three-year-old who you know, could get any girl he wanted and was out to party. And he was asked, you know, in our interview, he asked, so what are the students after? What we would like is a bit more time, a bit more <laughs> spending money, an opportunity to hang out with our girlfriends and buy some Nike shoes. We want to be modern, contemporary young people who enjoy the pleasures of life. And he was being very frank. And that, so they had a whole pile of people who felt that if the economic reforms collapsed or if the party continued to dominate every aspect of their lives, they'd enjoy none of those things. Now, one would observe that Wurakeshi's um, dreams for Nike shoes, freedom, time to hang out with a girl and have a decent apartment have been realized in China. So from the point of that point of view, post-1989 Chinese economic development has realized that China dream. However... What comes with the realization of the material dream then comes, but I need some more dignity. I need respect in my society. I need a say. But the great Ai Weiwei would also say much is lost, but the Chinese are inherently mischievous, witty, see around corners, resist in, in their own private ways. What is, the, what is the dream of something like the diversity, the energy, the confidence of Tiananmen Square before the crash, reasserting itself, maybe in unlikely places. Well, Weiwei, who I've known since 1978, is absolutely correct. There'll always be the obstreperous, you know, naughty individuals, the whimsical, like Weiwei or Liu Xiaobo, these people I admire tremendously. 
and they will always be there. Whether we'll see in, well, in my lifetime, whether we'll see a China that finds room for these people, not only to engage in naughty expression online or through pop-up artworks or whatever, but actually as part of a society that's a bit more accepting and embracing. Whether we'll see that again of the kind we did see in the late 70s through the 1980s in China, I simply don't know. Jeremy Barmay was a principal writer of the epic PBS reconstruction of the Tiananmen story, The Gate of Heavenly Peace. Coming up, two eminent Chinese writers still channeling China's effervescence from the 1980s. This is Open Source. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and His Excellency Deng Xiaoping. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. American media called it a new China that was emerging after the death of Chairman Mao in 1976, and it ran deep into the 1980s. Here's a taste of the official U.S. enthusiasm with country singer John Denver greeting Deng Xiaoping on a visit to the Kennedy Center in Washington. And then the comedian Bob Hope popping up in Beijing on an NBC special. Mr. Vice Premier, it is with great joy that we welcome you to our country. And it is with true love. Yeah, we're off on the road to China. Hey, this is it, Peking, China. Amazing, isn't it? Just 10 years ago, who would have dreamt an American comedian would be standing here in Tiananmen Square saying whatever he pleased and photographing anything he pleased. In the 1980s, the young crop of Chinese intellectuals coming through college never got over the liberated spirit, the cosmopolitan curiosity that had surfaced on campus as soon as the Cultural Revolution was abandoned. Jia Jianying writes for The New Yorker magazine these days, and she writes books in English and Chinese, a big one on China in the 80s and Tiananmen Square just 30 years ago this week. Jean Wang is the Abby Aldrich Rockefeller Professor of Asian Art at Harvard. Jianying, you start. You were there. What part yeah. of that 80s spirit sticks, sticks to the ribs, as we say, the ribs of the mind, the spirit? <laughs> well, I was uh, first, uh, uh, first batch of the students uh, who uh, came straight out of, uh, well, I was actually the youngest of that first class of uh, students who had the opportunity to go, go to college. And I ended up uh, straight from a farm, to the classroom of Peking University. It was so surreal, and um, every one of us uh, had such hunger for books, uh, and I must say especially foreign books, which were uh, a ban uh, during the Cultural Revolution for the whole last 10 decades. So there were uh, these uh, um, translations. Um, some, some are reprints. Some are fresh translations of all the modern uh, Western intellectual works, and even books like uh, Sartre, Nietzsche, and, and um, uh, Heidegger were like bestsellers. Mm. Uh, people really line up uh, to read everything they could get their hands on. So there was this uh, tremendous um, uh, hunger for knowledge. And, of course, there's a, a pretty open um, public conversation about what happened um, in the past. And so there is a, a lot of um, uh, 
uh, short stories and, and journalism coming out. Um, for example, there's a phenomenon called the wounded literature. So people writing about the, the persecution and the, you know, all that political campaigns under the Maoist um, uh, period. And so there's um, a lot, and then there's a, a lot of uh, artistic experimentation uh, in the film, in the arts. Mm-hmm. There are lots mm-hmm. of, um, you know, um, sort of salon-like groups uh, who discussed all kinds of issues. So it was a wonderful uh, period. It's people of all ages felt like we're having like a kind of a almost like a useful carnival, you know, <laughs> of uh, this, this celebratory uh, atmosphere was very contagious. That's amazing. Uh, I, I want to hear the Gene Wang version, but then I want to come back to you and ask, where did it go in your own heart to this day? It sounds sounds like it's there, but also in the culture. Gene, what was your story? Were you from a farm too? No, um, I was from a small city, but uh, my story is a different variation of what Jane said. Uh, indeed, that was a heady days, and um, every self-respecting Chinese uh, college student would avidly read um, Hegel, Freud, uh, Nietzsche, oh, and uh, authors like uh, Friedrich Capra and Douglas Richard Hofstadter, who wrote this uh, Godel, Escher, Bach, and Eternal uh, Golden Braid, uh, was absolutely the bestseller. And I myself mm-hmm. also trans- translated Roland Barthes' Fragment de Discours Amoureux in English. That's the lover's Roland discourse. Roland Barthes, the French theorist, the original theorist. Yes. Uh, so I first translated a, in, fla- uh, a, in installments and published in a journal called uh, Shuling. And that uh, obviously really caught on with uh, writers and students. I remember I had a cousin at the Tongji University, and she told me that every single um, Roommate in in those days in the college days, uh, seven girls would be crammed into one dorm, and they say that every single one of them on the under their pillow had a book that I translated. Uh, That's so it was I just got to say the, the energy, the intellectual energy yeah. of those Chinese students, and I think there's millions of them still there, is daunting. It's it's incredible. Yes. And also, I was fortunate. So Jane was in Beijing University. I was in Fudan University. And after in saying, Shanghai, in Shanghai, there, yeah. and um, we were pretty uh, blessed. Uh, in uh, it was a university visited by in the 80, early eighties by three uh, presidents: Gustave uh, Destan uh, from France, Margaret Thatcher from England, and uh-huh. Ronald Reagan from uh, U.S. Ronald and, Reagan at Fudan. Yes, uh, in 1984. Um, and in fact, uh, he made a. Uh, I know uh, Ronald Reagan is a, a posturizing uh, figure in the U.S. Uh, political landscape, but uh, in, in China, actually, that speech was pretty uh, compelling and uh, significant. So he um, he actually mimicked uh, a Chinese line, kind of "我想念大家, I miss you all." Uh, the line he got from a, a Harvard student named Ye Yang, who's studying. At, uh, uh, at Harvard at the time. So he, the State Department checked with the Yin Yang and said, what message you want to um, send to China? He, he said, oh, uh, send, tell them that I miss them all. And then um, uh, Ray, Reagan managed to speak that in, in Chinese. And then he also said, you know, um, there's a great deal of fascination of the, uh, the U.S. P- uh, public fascination with China. So uh, here I come and let's move forward together. We, wow. we have been... 
um, you know, so there's a great deal of... Um, you know, I can hear it in both of your voices that that formed your, your careers, really. Uh, that enthusiasm, that confidence, that let's go for it. Uh, but where did it go in China, would you say? You first, Ying. Well, uh, of course, it paved way all the way to 1989, as Jeremy had just uh, described, you know. Um, all this, um, you know, exploration and, and sort of uh, relatively free discussion about uh, the past and the future give everybody, especially the young people uh, and the intellectuals, a sense that um, anything is possible and, and today is going to, tomorrow is going to be better than today. And then, you know, we just um, keep on improving in all kinds of ways. And this whole romantic romanticism about uh, the West, especially America, um, was um, really strong, and people just thought, um, well, you know, uh, it's, it's, we have a model, we have an icon, and really, uh, at that time, America really doesn't just um, stand for, didn't just stand for uh, power and, and, and wealth, but really for mm. ideas, for mm. freedom and um, democracy. So, you know, from there, you, you start with these small, like, uh, for example, in Beijing University, uh, this was, of course, later, after I already came to the States, but um, the later classes um, at Peking University already had these uh, salons discussing uh, democracy with uh, some of the uh, students who later would emerge on Tiananmen Square as leaders, such as uh, Wang Dan. You know, he was leading a, a salon group at uh, Beijing University. And so um, people thought you could just keep on breaking taboos and, and moving ahead. Uh, but I, I, at least, I mean, I, I, in fact, you know, some of the, you know, bad omens were there already. Like Jeremy said, there was... Yes, um, handwriting know, was on the yeah. wall that it was not going to be a democracy and that markets would rule. Yeah, and that, that um, the, the Wei Jingsheng, the, the person who wrote that um, famous uh, poster, was sentenced to 20 years in, in jail. Mm. And I remember the year when the news came, uh, I was about to turn 20, and I had my first, you know, major quarrel with my father, who's an old-style kind of uh, true believer. He was a, like a Marxist philosopher, and he agreed with was this and he actually believed in the punishment that, um, yeah in the punishment he thought he bought the party story because the story was that uh, this guy leaked uh, that, um, state secrets uh, so you know uh, and and so you know he he was properly uh, punished uh, but um, and then you know there were there were other signs there were actually periodically these um, sort of campaigns to uh, hmm. called like um, you know wipe out the bourgeois liberalism, uh, but so there, but then because the the overwhelming uh, groundswell from so many you know um, community uh, from so many sectors to keep moving forward, so hmm. these campaigns would be like you know you you march two steps ahead and then these campaigns pull you back by one step, but then you you come back and march further, you know, so nobody really thought. Um, it would come to Tiananmen to a massacre, even to the last uh, weeks uh, for a lot of students who camped out there, um, people thought oh we 're you know under the world uh, the, the world media because of uh, gorbachev 's visit 
were all gathered there, and so everything was uh, recorded. Mm. Uh, we had the support of the entire world. <laughs> it so had to work out. Yeah. Sense of uh, invincibility. Nobody believed this would come to a bloody end, but Gene, of course it did. Gene Wang, you had a personal experience with Allen Ginsberg uh, at Fudan. I, I want to hear that and what the counterpart of it would be today, if any. I mean, the famous beat poet, yes. Howell, and all that. So actually, um, on my way here, we were talking about the 1984. Actually, 1984 in China was the least 1984 to some extent because you have a lot of things happening in a way that is contrary to what we now understand what 1984 to be. So uh, Reagan was speaking there at Fudan, uh, talking about the hope ahead. And Allen Ginsberg actually uh, visited China in Shanghai in 1984. So I was assigned by the university to be his interpreter and actually arrangements to uh, accompany him to a play. And Mm. somehow that day he was less interested in the play. He said, why don't we just uh, hang out and and talk? (laughs) So in fact, uh, uh, it was, uh, so we had had hours, hours long conversation and he, I actually took the case because I knew he was a famous poet. So I uh, sort of uh, gingerly, timidly took out my English uh, poem that I composed. I asked him to you, revise. Huh? And, and he, he, he uh, gave a few looks and he, he uh, corrected some. And then he said, wow, try to write in your own language. Don't, don't bother with <laughs> English poem. And, and, uh, and then he would ask some wacky questions about, you know, uh, how... Chinese students do with their bodies at night and so forth. So, so that's very uh, typically him. But then on the other hand, I, I, I noted that he would, really, uh, uh, would take a lot of notes and, and, um, and then he actually uh, ended up uh, uh, writing some um, poems about his experience in China. And one of them is actually a very interesting uh, called uh, uh, One Morning I Took a Walk in China. So here's how it goes. Is a mm. student danced with wooden silvered swords, twirling on hard-packed muddy earth. As I walked out of Hebei University concrete northern gate across the road, a blue-capped man sold fried sweet dough uh, uh, sticks, brown as a new boiled doughnuts. In the great light of sky, past popular tree trunks where washed cylinders topple with a red band the height of a boy. Children with the school satchels sang and walked past me. Wow. So these are the sort of immediate impression he kind of jotted down. It's not a, a lot of poems that produced. Uh, Could he recite, bring, bring back Alan Goodberg, Could he re- or a hip young or American poet today, could he recite that poem, very inoffensive politically, in in Fudan, in Shanghai today. Oh, surely he did. Uh, how howling? Yeah, he did that. And then also, also he. No, performed. I'm talking today. C- could a, could an American poet read a, a beautifully observant, interesting poem to a Chinese audience? Oh, t- oh, definitely. I don't think there's a problem with that. Would he have an audience as he did with you? Yeah, he he certainly did. And I remember he was uh, also playing on the Concordian and uh, uh, reciting William Blake and his own poems, of course. It was quite a memorable experience. It's so fascinating to think of Chinese students then and now familiar with William Blake and Allen Ginsberg and, and Camus and all these writers. Is that still there? Oh, yes. Um, um, 
presumably I, I uh, since I've been, you know, I've left China um, about 30 years ago. But certainly back then it was uh, the case because uh, we were right, uh, quite blessed with a whole line of Fulbright professors from the U.S. and from Canada. And uh, they were quite, uh, you know, really uh, remarkable scholars in their own right. But they were teaching, you know, all the Connecticut Western literature in a way that mm. uh, I felt we were really open up our eyes. And uh, John Ying, can you picture yourself back as an eager young student listening to American and world poets in China today? I mean, could that happen? Well, poetry is in somewhat, I, I would say, rarefied uh, uh, world. Yes. I mean, uh, you could still read poetry through imagery and all this, uh, even if there is some social commentary or political implications, is it's kind of mitigated by the verse, right? But uh, I would say on campus today, the, the atmosphere is quite different from the 1980s because I, I was there actually uh, last year because my daughter uh, spent a, a kind of a semester abroad in my alma mater in Peking University last year. And so through her and then also because I visited some of my old friends who are, you know, have been teachers there and then talked to some of the students, the feeling is, you know, there could be a, still a relatively free private mm conversation about, say, current events, and people can be um, relatively frank uh, to discuss in private, but there's definitely a feeling of watching over your shoulders all the time uh, in in public. And in classrooms, um, I think, well, it's different if you're in a science um, department or a business school, but if you're in a humanities uh, I think that the the discussion would be uh, uh, strained when, especially when um, the topics is on what's uh, called sensitive topics. Uh, yeah. So you know, but sometimes, of course, there there um, there are surprising um, little bubbles coming up where you feel, oh, this police state is not airtight. There, they could still be even in classrooms where these days there. Are um, you know, student, what do you call these student agents who actually send secret reports to the party, um, uh, to the party branch at the university if mm. the teacher is considered to be uh, giving a, 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 a lecture that's too critical, whether it's about um, the party history or about the, you know, um, you know, uh, certain liberal values. Uh, he could be reported on, um, uh, you know, and then there's uh, these uh, sort of uh, uh, surveillance monitors. Um, in the name, uh, it, it seemed to be like a kind of just you put in surveillance cameras to to um, make sure that nobody's stealing stuff and, and things like that. Uh, maybe there's no, no harassment going on. But in fact, it puts a kind of a, a fear, a, a pall on the atmosphere. Um, uh, and and in the in the classroom, I think people would um, basically uh, avoid talking about anything that's yeah. overtly political or it's, critical. It's so sad to think about it. All that fierce intellectual energy blooming in the sciences and technology in China, but um, inhibited maybe out of existence in the the human realm, shall we say? Coming up. Individual dignity in China, up against authoritarian capitalism and 
a surveillance state. This is Open Source. Ruthless military force fouled the air of experimentation in Tiananmen Square for a long time. But oddly enough, a kind of cosmopolitanism did emerge in the 90s. Here's the rock group Tang Dynasty singing the Internationale. Our Australian authority, Jeremy Barmay, observed that the zigzag of cause and effect is ever the rule, not the exception, in modern China. I like Yu Hua's picture of ever-contradictory China in the image of going into a hotel room and the sign says, no smoking, and there's a gift package of cigarettes on the table for you. Yes, but what's changed, Chris, now, there, is that there's a gift pack of cigarettes, there's a sign, no smoking, and now there's a surveillance camera. Mm. That's a big change. A friend just yesterday, my God, I was on the train recently, and all the children were quiet and all the parents were well behaved, and it's because they were all behaving like Germans. And I said, why do you think that was? Well, because they all know there are surveillance cameras everywhere, and they can be fined and punished if they move out of lockstep. So that is a real development, and that is an unfolding scenario that is disturbing for China, but also disturbing for the rest of the world, because every government would like to be able to control their people like the Chinese would hope to control right. them. But how does the clear-eyed, realistic, outspoken realization of what's going on in China not contribute to, shall we say, Mike Pompeo's new Cold War with China? Because you asked the very question, why not? How can it not? Well, because it's now in the interest of these people to pursue their own ideological warfare with China on the basis of caricature. And once you get into the realm of Cold War-style caricature and simplification and like Fox News black and white analysis, we're all lost. We're all lost in this morass of meaninglessness. Is there any way to put a bow around an American understanding of what was lost, what is probably lost forever, and put the 80s to rest? Well, the 80s will never be to rest. These things will all come back to haunt because... China is living with what we would call, what I call, the unresolved 20th century. China is moving towards achieving its dreams of wealth, that is material prosperity, and military power. And these are two of the great hopes for China. But there is also the hope of dignity, modernity, and democracy. Now, those are unfulfilled hopes that have been rattling around since the 1890s did right through the 20th century. And no matter what the official China says about American democracy, the decay of Europe, the backwardness of the Pacific Islands, or the silliness of the Australasian world of Australia and New Zealand, no matter what they say about the Indian democratic system, in China there's still a profound belief in the nature of the importance of individual dignity, right to choose, right to have a say in one's governance, right to have a civil society in which one is an equal participant. And China today is facing, oddly, 30 years after the Tiananmen demonstrations and the Beijing massacre of 1989, it's facing a similar type of crisis, i.e., in the late 1980s, China faced a succession crisis, because Deng Xiaoping was the absolute arbiter and ruler of China, despite all the, the window dressing of Zhao Ziyang or other leaders and so on, mm. he made the decisions and he was treated as what is called in Chinese the ultimate arbiter. Ding Yu Today, China has an unelected, 
life-term president, ruler, general secretary, Xi Jinping, who wants the same type of power Deng Xiaoping had, wants to maintain ideological coherence while pursuing the marketization of things in China, but cutting back on the types of reforms that are desperately necessary for the economy to continue to grow and develop. He is very interested also in military power authority and China's globalized role. Now, China is faced with a similar dilemma because it has already, because of what Xi Jinping has done, a succession crisis of the kind that Deng Xiaoping generated mm. by himself purging leader after leader that created this problem now. Xi Jinping has created a succession crisis because he can't name a successor. We can't be sure how Chinese politics will unfold because he's banned all debate and discussion of factionalism. We don't have greater insights into how the system works now because all of that discussion has been closed off from the public. So Americans and other observers are now dealing with a China that one has to read through reading the tea leaves more than mm. at any other time in the last 30 years, or 40 years in fact. And therefore, we're faced with the types of dilemmas of incomprehension and easy miscalculation that we all faced in 1988-89, when people miscalculated and thought, oh, it's going to democratize, there'll be a massive change. Yes, you know, just after Tiananmen, the Soviet Union began to dissolve, eventually did dissolve, but the Berlin Wall came down and the whole Cold War scenario changed. Well, now we're entering exactly 30 years later, a new Cold War division of the world with the same types of incomprehension, simplistic views on our part and the dilemmas created by autocracy and unelected authority in China as we had in the late 1980s. Quite something. Is there any way to keep a kind of critical, realistic eye on China and get rid of the war fantasy, the war language, the war metaphors in the same breath? It's impossible. Um, in America, it's very hard because of your own history. But in the Chinese sense, the Chinese Communist Party has always used military metaphors and, and, and language of violence and, and struggle. But Xi Jinping has made struggle, individual and national, regional and military, a centerpiece of all of his discussion. Interesting. A New Year message in January this year, I think he mentioned the word struggle 17 times in his speech. Zheng mm. or Dou. He uses this language constantly. The official line is, in China, we have only a peaceful DNA. There's nothing warlike in our history. We've never been expansionist. We're never violent. This is a fantasy of the highest order. So the Communist Party culture is a culture built on class violence, local violence, race violence, political and economic violence. And so America, which itself is a country eternally at war, itself has a culture of constant warfare and strife. Mm. At the moment, I'm not too optimistic that things are going to go along happily as they are. And both countries, in terms of the DNA of both uh, political cultures, violence and opposition, simplification and extremism are the bread and butter of politics. That was Jeremy Barmay, the almost Chinese-Australian who has a substantial and, and respectful following in China and among Chinese everywhere. He was a principal author of the remarkable PBS three-hour account of Tiananmen Square. It came five years after the fact, and it's still easily available on YouTube. We bring it home with two children of China in the 80s, Xia Jianying, who writes for The New Yorker and elsewhere, and Eugene Wang, who, who teaches art and art history and art theory at Harvard. Gene, would you just begin with 
your own experience of the perils, especially to poets, and the emotional turmoil that we we haven't surfaced yet? Yeah, um, I still remember well. I, in fact, I think uh, uh, the, there are still some kind of spiritual legacy in the 1980s that is uh, lived on, and uh, people still cherish the poetic imagination of the 1980s. In particular, I think that was epitomized by the poet Hai Zi, uh, who um, from 1984 to 1989 uh, wrote a large number of poems and, and had a huge following. And to some extent, I think Hai Zi's poetry encapsulated and embodied the, the psychology of the young generation. Mm. And um, he came from a provincial town from Anhui and went to Beijing to study and then um, uh, started teaching in Beijing as well. But you could see that in his poem is always um, filled with uh, both a sense of euphoria and melancholy loss. Mm. And, um, and he fell in, in and out of love four times with four different young women. And inexplicably, um, he uh, committed suicide in oh. 1988. Um, 88, before the yes, crash. Yes. So to some extent, uh, his story is one of the story of what you call the mind of the 1980s, is, even though Jeremy doesn't quite like the collective uh, <laughs> definition of mind. Not when it comes but, from me. But uh, does does uh, capture that. Now, this is very remarkable that uh, when he was dying, uh, about, oh, well, when he was about to die, he actually, so he uh, threw himself on the railroad, and, uh, but carrying with him four mm. books. Uh, the, uh, among the four books is uh, one that is about, uh, uh, that was written by this uh, 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 Swedish author um, about how in those days, in the 1940s, uh, this uh, Swedish author tried to uh, reenact the crossing from uh, from South America to uh, French Pol- uh, Polynesia, and uh, by um, constructing a raft, and actually took uh, 100. One days to cross the Pacific, mm. so Hyde uh, pocketed that book with him and threw himself on the railroad. So, and also before he died, it's a, it's a difficult statement to translate. But can you can you try? What, what was he saying? Well, he he left us with a poem, and this poem reads that from tomorrow on, I will be a happy person grooming, chopping, and traveling all over the world. From tomorrow on, I will care foodstuff and vegetables. I have a house toward the sea with spring flowers blossoming. From tomorrow, I will write to each of my dear ones, telling them of my happiness, what the listening of the blessedness has told me. I will spread it to each of them and give a warm name to every river and every mountain. Mm. Strangers, I will also give you my well-wishing. May you have a brilliant future. May your lovers eventually become spouse. May you enjoy happiness in this earthly world. I only wish to face the sea with the spring flowers blossoming. And with that, he threw himself 
to the railroad. John Ying, I want to ask you, is there a poet of that melancholy, that power, um, writing a poem in in Xi Jinping's China today? Uh, The poetry, of course, is still uh, being written, uh, but it's so, like, marginalized into these uh, private um, recitations and and groups. It ceased to be a kind of um, the voice of a generation or Mm. speaking to an era, like in the 1980s. Um, in, back then, you know, poets were like cultural heroes. Um, like um, this, um, uh, one of the leading uh, poets of the time. I mean, he was actually called uh, in some ways like the uh, Allen Ginsberg of my generation. Mm. Uh, this man Beidal, he, he knows um, Allen Ginsberg too, and he back then his poetry. Uh, were like um, uh, familiar, but you know, has millions of readers. Um, poetry with titles like "I Don't Believe," and and then there were, you know, just it's hard to translate. But they they are, they were the voice of a whole generation of that uh, time. But um, decades later, for example, one of his more recent poems that were circulating on the internet in Chinese social media really registered a much darker uh, and a kind of a pessimistic tone. Uh, their minds um, go something like, I'm, I'm literally translating in my head, something like, you know, like uh, uh, we old friends um, gather today again drinking when we toast to each other our, you know, the, the, the shattering glasses are the sound of our broken dreams. Uh, something like that, mm-hmm. and um, that really kind of is, is a um, uh, reflection of a mood, a general mood. Um, and I, I would, um, I totally understand what Jeremy was saying that um, it has, you know, after thirty years, it has co- come down to this. I mean, all the all the romance between mm-hmm. um, China and U.S. Uh, seem to have become this. Um, warlike atmosphere and tension and resulting in a very conflicted emotions i i would say among the chinese i know uh people of my generation who have um, been watching the trade war and all this um you know louder and louder kind of nationalistic um noises on both sides feel very conflicted i mean at one level they are. They know what happened to to China, and mainly the main blame was, uh, of course, the butchers of Beijing are still alive and well. People like Li Peng, you know, the prime minister who announced martial law back then, but also this new leadership, you know, under Xi Jinping, has shown such willingness to go backwards, uh, you know. And also, is, let me just break in to say they've also monetized the dream on a calculation mm-hmm. that this will be enough, that the kids yes, will... Yeah, I mean, Deng, actually, after Tiananmen, made this silent pact with the population, which right. is, you know, you keep really. your mouth, 
you keep your mouth shut and make money and let me rule. Uh, just and and so the censorship has been uh, in place ever since then. It's just you know um, a cynical uh, kind of uh, decision to channel the entire national energy to the business of making money. And uh, by and large, we're doing a bit of that in this country too. <laughs> yes, yes. So I mean, and and unfortunately, at this moment. The mood is so bleak that some of the Chinese liberals, even um, among some of the most, uh, you know, brave uh, dissidents, uh, which have lived this beleaguered uh, life, like Liu Xiaobo, who died in, in prison, yes. some of them are now turned their hope to this uh, sort of hardline uh, Trump policy. There are lots of uh, Trump supporters uh, in China. Uh, and who who feel like uh, well the you know the soft uh, um, globalization po- policy have failed. So what's left now is is uh, push China through real pressure and don't you know make excuses anymore. They see they I mean this is all hindsight. They they see the the. the U.S. policy of, you know, win-win, let's make money together, let's just get rich together, and, you know, human rights be damned, or, or if not be damned, at least it's been put on the back, what, a back burner. Let me, uh, let they, me ask Gene Wang before we're done, yeah. uh, Jianying, um, this is a calculation that, that's, that wealth can uh, subdue or make people forget what people have called this uh, uh, individual dignity and wit and variety and resistance that seems to have been built into China. How does it come out, Gene Wang? Yeah, um, well, they've spoken well on, on, on the more political side, but I, I, I want to um, express my concern on the educational, uh, educational side, mainly that um, with the uh, you know, growing nationalism and the closing doors, and I, I worry that the kind of encouragement of pluralism in the 80s might mm. be lost, and that I don't want to see happening to the future generation of China. My moral is that uh, we should talk about China every week. It's it's a real pleasure, and we're very very grateful. Eugene Wang, Xia Jiangying. And Jeremy Barmay. Thanks also to Julian Gewertz at Harvard. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, the artist Susan Coyne, George Hicks is our engineer, Mary McGrath is our party secretary. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source.